1: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Break a Bat podcast where baseball meets Broadway, an attempt to show that my two favorite mediums don't have to live in such separate worlds and maybe even break some stigmas. We're happy to have you with us. Now let's play ball. Hello and welcome to Break a Bat, where baseball meets Broadway and sports meets show business. This is Al Malafrante coming at you for the Broadway Podcast Network. And today we're going to be joined by someone who I actually have a relationship with, at least as far as being a reader goes, uh, all the way back to elementary school. Um, and I, I'm i not trying to place any blame on our special guest, but uh, this gentleman got me in trouble quite a few times in art class when, uh, you know, occasionally the uh, Newsday, I guess, was used to, uh, you know, lay out on the uh, tables while everyone was painting. And maybe I got a little bit distracted in class uh, reading his baseball columns while he was the uh, Yankees beat writer for Newsday. And uh, over the years, you know, his career overall spans more than two decades uh as of 2012 he's actually been writing for the new york post as one of the best baseball columnists in the business and uh i'm just so grateful he could join us today so with that being said i ask you all to please turn your attention to home plate just beyond the marquee now batting ken davidoff ken thanks so much for joining us thanks for having me alan thanks for the nice introduction well i'm very happy to have you join us today but I'm sorry that the New York baseball season ended so abruptly. I know uh, you write quite a bit in the national scale, but I'm sure that deep down you were pulling for a fun October for the Yanks and Mets.
0: I mean, I, that's good for business, I suppose. But you know, my job is to be impartial and to, you know, not really care, uh, you know, who wins. And you know, ultimately, my my line is I, I root for quick games so I can go home. <laughs>
1: What do you think of these like four hour games? They've made all these efforts to speed the game up and uh, none of it really seems to be working. You know, it's funny. I don't hear,
0: I have heard a few complaints this year about postseason games going along. To me, postseason games are just kind of epic. You know, like there's just so much drama and intensity. It doesn't bother me the same way it does when it's, you know, a 4 1 game in June that goes three and a half hours. So, yeah, you're right. The more measures have to be taken. And I think that the 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 one that's going to solve it is the pitch clock.
1: Now, do you think that I mean we have a new CBA uh, negotiation coming up this offseason? Do you think that we would actually see something like that?
0: I think the pitch clock is inevitable. Yeah, I, I think uh, it, there's just, it's so obvious how much it helps. If you look at what's going on this season in the lower A league, it used to be called the California League. Uh, it, is, it is remarkable the, the the impact it can have. You know, take takes half hour off the average time of game. And it's just uh, too good to pass up. And I I know pitchers are sensitive to that, but I think a lot of these pitchers now have grown up in the minor leagues using the pitch clock. So I think the more the older pitchers age out, uh, the more it will just become natural and and it will be implemented.
1: Now, how much did the pandemic impact your day-to-day as far as access to players and stories go? And then of course your writing style, has it been a big challenge?
0: Yeah, it's been a huge challenge. Uh, last year, I mean, I really didn't see a player. I'm trying, you know, Maybe I stumbled upon someone on the road, like outside the ballpark. But yeah, last year it was all 100% in Zoom. We were only, weren't allowed anywhere near the players last year. That was really hard, you know, and uh, not to mention the lack of fans in the ballpark. This year has been a little better. Uh, we're at least allowed to interview the players in person before the game. Uh, on the field during batting practice. And now I'm, I'm talking to you from Houston. I'm covering the American league championship series. Uh, So uh, there are pregame press conferences. So there are more personal interactions that way, Uh, but there's still no clubhouse access. Like we used to get uh, before the pandemic.
1: Now, what's your favorite city to travel to (laughs)
0: probably Seattle. Seattle is just such a great city. It feels so exotic to me. It feels so not American. You know, it, 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 Feel so distant, and, and geographically it's beautiful, and there's some great restaurants there. So that, that's probably my favorite.
1: Now it's pretty amazing. I don't want to make this like a career retrospective, but you know, I mentioned the fact that you've been part of the fabric of you know New York baseball writing for nearly more than two decades now. Um, you began your journey on the beat back in 1998 writing for the Bergen record at the time, covering the Yankees. And I know you had covered the Fab Five back when you were at Michigan, but was it intimidating to walk into that clubhouse for the first time, especially when you consider how that was really the peak of the Yankees being rock stars here in the city?
0: Well, it's a good question. But to clarify, I had been around the Yankees since 1995, really. Uh, I I was a backup beat writer for a few years uh, before I became the beat writer in, in 1998. So I didn't go into that. Uh, blind. You know, I, I had some relationships uh, for sure. It would have been intimidating to walk into that blind. Uh, and it was intimidating in 1995 when I started, you know, first, first covering major league ball players. But by the time 98 rolled around, I actually had a, a comfort level with most of the people there. And that includes uh, Joe Torrey and the coaches and the front office and and all that.
1: Now, there didn't seem to be a lot of ego with that team compared to some of the guys today and I know it was a different world now you have social media and everything but uh, the not only was the character high on those teams which I think really stands out but you know as we all know the win total was too was there anyone in particular with a different or more guarded personality where you found it to be a struggle to cover them on a day-to-day basis
0: <laughs> well I mean Derek Jeter was legendarily uh, you know made himself available uh, to answer questions but you know he took great pride in the fact that he he didn't disclose much so you know that could be frustrating at times also it could be kind of fun just to try to you know poke the bear and see if you could get him in the right spot
1: you know michael k had a great quote about him once it was he'll open the door um or excuse me like he'll talk to you through the screen door <laughs> for 20 minutes but he's not letting you in
0: that's uh, a well it, put well put and he
1: was like that even at age 23 24 also oh yeah he was that way
0: yeah, yeah, really just uh, came out of the oven that way, you know, uh, and uh, he, um, and I actually, uh, he and I both attended the University of Michigan, uh, so I had that connection, actually, when I was a senior at Michigan, he was a freshman, and we, I remember we did a story on him, you know, he, he didn't play for Michigan, because he had already started playing in the minors for the Yankees, but he, he attended for a semester, and we did a big story, and I remember talking to him about that story, so, there you know, we had that. Uh, bond, but yeah, that certainly did not. You know, we could talk Michigan sports. We we did for many years, uh, but no, he was a, he was a very difficult guy to to get in that door, as Michael said.
1: Now I mentioned your time at Newsday. That was right during my peak of being a Yankee fan. You were you were on the beat from 01 to 04, which is right around the time that Alex Rodriguez arrived in two thousand four. Yeah. Who was tougher on a day to day during their peaks? Was a Jeter or a Rod?
0: <laughs> they were tough and. In completely different ways, you know. I mean, Derek just because he he wouldn't give you much, even though he would stand there and answer the questions. Alex was, was just unpredictable. You never knew what was going to happen. You know, you never knew what he was going to do on the field. You knew never knew what he was going to say off the field. Uh, you never knew what he was going to show up on page six. Uh, so that made covering Alex uh, a challenge. so Yeah, two two dramatic. It's really amazing they were ever friends. I, I guess. Obviously, they, they were both extremely talented shortstops, but that's really about all they had in common. Uh, so they were just uh, you know I, I, I'm really grateful I got to cover both, uh, and and they presented completely different, unique challenges.
1: Now, did the relation change? Or, excuse me, relationship change a lot with either of them once you had to start asking the tough questions. Not that you had to ask too many tough questions about Jeter, at least back then. But a Rod, for example, didn't necessarily have his best season the first year in New York, and he. Obviously, was kind of the lightning rod in that whole '04 ALCS. He didn't really do much. Um, did that make it difficult, especially having to cover these guys on a day-to-day basis?
0: Well, made my what changed my dynamic was when I got promoted from beat writer to columnist because now I'm expressing opinions, and sometimes they didn't agree with those opinions. And uh, I would have to say, um, you know, both tried to completely uh, shrug them off and pretend not to read what I wrote, but uh, You know, in general, I would say Derek was more sensitive to that than than Alex was. I think Alex was just such a storm of of commentary about him uh, that he just kind of, you know, it was able to just kind of put it all in a box. Whereas Derek, you know, he got criticized less frequently. So it was a bigger deal when when you did uh, go after him a little bit.
1: Now, are you ever hesitant to write the tough story, Ken? Huh.
0: Uh, I hope not. I hope not. I, I shouldn't keep my job if I am. You know, obviously, you try to handle it with a certain amount of respect and and grace and fairness. But there are times when I have to be critical, no doubt about it. And uh, you know, that's that's why I do what I do.
1: Now, who gave you the most pushback on a tough story over the years? <sighs>
0: that's a very oh yeah. I'd have to say Matt Harvey. Yeah, Matt. Uh, Matt and I had some. Uh, disagreements, I guess you could say, over uh, you know some of the stuff I wrote, which is you know, his right to express his opinion.
1: Like him not showing up to a playoff workout, for example. For example. <laughs> you know, he was something else. I mean, you talk about, I, I always had some questions about him, even from when he first came up. It seems like before he had actually really accomplished anything big, and obviously he had a world of talent. But he was already talking about, well, I, Derek Jeter's my idol, not because of the championships, but because of you know the nightlife component and all that stuff. So he just always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, it seems like there's a lot of guys that kind of get wrapped, they get wrapped up in that, especially here in the city. It's very easy for that to happen. But yeah, I always kind of have my doubts about his character. And then it's just so amazing that he was so fragile that after that game five of the 2015 World Series, it's like he never recovered it from that. I, I never quite understood like what was going through that guy's head throughout his whole tenure here.
0: Well, yeah, you touched on a lot there. Uh, I'll just address the last part to be fair to Matt Harvey. I, I don't think it's been a mental thing since 2015. I think he's just broken down physically. You know, I, I mean, he pitched a lot in 2015, uh, his first year back from Tommy John surgery And, you know, he had the uh, thoracic outlet syndrome in 2016. He's just had a lot physically. And yeah, you referenced it. He he wasn't shy about the fact that he lived hard, you know, that he enjoyed the nightlife. And I think that could contribute to it, too. But, yeah, I I don't think uh, what happened in game five of the 2015 World Series impacted his pitching after that.
1: Now, have you crossed paths with him since, since he's pitched for the Orioles or the, um, or the Reds or anything like that? Has he been a little bit easier on you since he's out of New York now?
0: <laughs> you know, I don't think I've seen Matt since the
1: Mets traded him to Cincinnati, I,
0: I'm, as far as I can recall. Uh, yeah, I don't think I've seen him.
1: Now you have a very interesting job because, especially back when you were on the beat, but you know now as a columnist too, you're really competing with folks who it seems like they're good friends of yours for stories and access. Um, what's that part of the job like for you?
0: Yeah, some are good friends, some are not. But you're right, and it's uh, you're you're a younger person, so you might not remember there was an old Bugs Bunny cartoon uh, with. Um, a fox and like a sheepdog, and the sheepdog's job every day was to protect the sheep from the fox. And so every, they would report to work every day, and it's morning, Sam, morning, Ralph, and the fox. You know, for, from nine to noon, uh, the fox would try to steal the sheep, and the sheepdog would bang the fox over the head with that mallet. You know, and they would go out, get out, they take their lunch break together, and then from you know one to five, they'd do it again. And then, you know, all right, see you tomorrow. And that's what it's like, you know, because you, you know, you, you, you do try to bash each other's heads in, uh, competitively professionally. And then, uh, you know, you you might very well go out to dinner with them or, or, uh, you know, or get to know their families. Uh, And it is, it is an odd dynamic.
1: Now, either on the New York baseball beat or on the national level, is there one baseball season that stands out, you know, for being the most fun?
0: Hmm i have to say 98, you know, just because of the Yankees, their historic season. And then you talk about the home run uh, records. And obviously, history has uh, shaded the, the how we look at that home run race. But in real time, and really, like I watched that 30 for 30 last year, I, I still think it's delightful. I'm not much of a moralist, so I don't really care how they got there. You know, I just think it was a fantastic story, and uh, that probably was the most fun.
1: Now, do you put those guys on your Hall of Fame ballot? Because I know you have a vote.
0: Uh, well, McGuire is no longer on the ballot. You know, who's on for ten years and, and is now off the ballot. Uh, Sosa. So there are some years I have, some years I haven't, and it's only because I, I actually think he's a little overrated as a player. Uh, and I, I, you know, the ballot limits you to ten spots, so there have been years where he hasn't reached my top ten, but the years where he has, I, I put him on.
1: Now you have Bonds and Clemens coming up on their final year of eligibility. How do you mm-hmm. feel about those two guys?
0: I feel strongly that they should be in the Hall of Fame. I have voted for them every year. I have publicly advocated for them. I would say at this point, I would be surprised if they got in. Uh, you know, they just have really been kind of stuck at six, the low sixty percent for a, a few years now.
1: And it's interesting because there are a lot of new guard writers that seem to be an advocate for you know something that you, as an old school guy. I've been lobbying for. I'm surprised they haven't gotten that push that they needed. What I think is going to be interesting is um, you have Big Poppy coming on the ballot for the first time this year. A-Rod, completely different circumstance because he failed the drug test. But it's like, how do you vote for Big Poppy and not Bonds and Clemens? You know, obviously there was suspicion with Big Poppy, But nonetheless, though, uh, with technically Bonds and Clemens never failed the drug test. There were stories and suspicion. So I don't know, how you put one in without the other.
0: It's a fair question. Just to clarify, A-Rod did not, the only drug test he failed was the survey test, which is the same one that Ortiz failed. When he got suspended in 2014, it was because of a trail of evidence of his communications with the, a dealer. Uh, yeah, it's all very complicated and nuanced, and each, each guy has kind of been his own case. You know, the Bonds and Clemens, it comes down to their dealers got caught. Right, that's there. You put them in the same box uh, because their dealers got caught and they spilled. Uh, I'm sorry, the uh, uh, bonds dealer didn't spill, but but the Fed's got a lot of information about it. Clemens dealer spilled, uh, and uh, so that, that puts them in one place. Ortiz, the one piece of information is he reportedly, and I, 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 I he did, he confirmed it. He failed the O three survey test. Uh, and that's it. I, I I don't, you know, I don't think that should exclude him. Uh, but I do think, I think that's, I think you just view it as how much evidence is there. There is more evidence indicting Bonds and Clemens than there is Ortiz.
1: Now, here on Broadway, we talk a lot about intense, emotional performers, and I think that very much defines Roger Clemens' legacy as a Yankee, you know, for those five years and and then the sixth year in 2007. What was he like to cover on an everyday basis?
0: He was a pleasure. I mean, I I really liked dealing with Roger. Yeah, he was uh, kind of on his own planet a lot of the time. You know, you would, you know, ask him a question of, you know, hey— Roger, a nice weather that we're having today. And somehow, like, the conversation would go around to country music or steak. You know, like, he would just take the conversation in very odd directions. Uh, but, yeah, Roger was, you know, always very accountable, always there to answer questions. Uh, I think his his teammates uh, generally liked him, especially once they got to know him better. Uh, and, look, he, he had a huge ego, no doubt about it. You know, he loved being Roger Clemens. Uh, but I do think he, he backed that up by kind of, honoring the superstar's obligations.
1: You know, when you look back on your career, you know, on a personal level, how do you feel like you've evolved in your writing style? Because I, have followed you for so long and it seems like you've, you always leave me wanting more every time I read your columns. <laughs> and I feel like you've, you've evolved with the game. You don't necessarily, necessarily agree with all of it and how it's played, you know, now compared to 2001 or even, you know, 2011. But, uh, what are, what are some of the bigger adjustments that you've had to make, uh, as time's gone on here?
0: Well, I think the biggest adjustment, uh, well, there's, I would say two. One is uh, just the evolution of uh, my product, you know, uh, of how when I started doing this in 1993, uh, covering high school sports, and then I started covering Major League Baseball in 1995, like anything I wrote, any piece of information I learned didn't become public until roughly 5 a.m. the next morning, uh, just because, you know, the internet really wasn't a factor back then. And now if I find out a piece of information, it's, it's public within minutes. Excuse me, if not seconds, uh, and the other piece would be uh, analytics. You know, all, all the new me- metrics and the new ways of looking at the game. And I, I take pride in the fact that I've really tried to keep up with those and, and understand and appreciate how they're being applied uh, by the teams and by the players. Rather than shake my fist at them and say this is foolish, which I I think is a very foolish approach uh, to looking at analytics. I've tried to incorporate that into my reporting.
1: Well, I think you have to marry the old school and the new school because I mean, quite often, you know, we're seeing starting pitchers get pulled after three, four innings, you know, in these playoff games, Blake Snell last year in the world series after five innings when he was just cruising. Um, I wonder, you know, at least with the Yankees, they have a very interesting off season in front of them because they have, at the time we're recording this, they haven't made a decision on Aaron Boone, although it seems like, you know, all indications are that he's going to be coming back. And as far as, you know, the front office goes, Brian Cashman is coming up on the final year of his contract. I don't want to say that Cashman's here on a lifetime scholarship, but I really mm-hmm. wonder if they've gotten too analytical and too far away from what's made them the New York Yankees, where they're going to start to reconsider how they, how they do things and maybe bring back a little bit more of that old school mentality. I know Hal's not his father, but I really, you know, question if that's something that they're going to consider.
0: All right. So do you mind if I push back a little here? Please do. Okay. So, like, well, give me an example. What would be, what move could the Yankees make for 22 that would re- reflect more of an old school mentality, too?
1: Well, I mean, for example, you know, they're, t- you know, one example is Gary Sanchez, for example. Mm-hmm. They're taught, talk- and I'm not the biggest Gary Sanchez fan, mm-hmm. but they're debating whether or not uh, to bring him back for, you know, not- it'll probably be about nine or $10 million, for example. Mm-hmm. And different ways that they could allocate that money. And I remember a very specific scene in Moneyball where I think Brad Pitt playing Billy Beam was talking about we could recreate him in the aggregate with, you know, with Mm -hmm. that money that they were going to save on Damon and Giambi. Um, I feel like the Yankees shouldn't have to be worrying about, you know, how are we going to better allocate $9 million? If you look at what it's taking to win, the Dodgers are a highly analytical team, but they have also have the highest payroll in baseball. Go out and make the big free agent splash and bring in an impact player that can change the culture here, rather than focusing on the nuts and bolts that I feel like has sort of defined some of the player acquisitions that the Yankees have made the last few years.
0: Okay. So again, we're friends. I'm going to push back. What, what, what is like, what exact, what move should they make that you would say? Okay, that's old school. I like that. Go, out, out, get Se- saying-
1: Go out and get Corey Seager. A five-tool player, um, okay. not necessary. Yeah, go out. I I know that he's going to have a hefty price tag, but nonetheless, though, I feel like he's. I feel like he's more of the old-school player. He's not necessarily an analytics darling. He's a guy that he is I feel completely like gets an analytics diced.
0: darling. He's one hundred percent an analytics darling.
1: In what way, though? Well, I mean, here's he doesn't necessarily... Well, here's the yes, he is a great player, but yeah. nonetheless, though, I feel like there's so much more of a focus on. The, when I talk about analytics, I'm also maybe grouping launch angle into it, for example, uh-huh. um, and, and I feel like he just is pure raw talent with great plate discipline. He always has a high on base percentage. Um, they don't as far as the defensive metrics go, he's not necessarily the best shortstop. For example, I feel like there's a lot of emphasis on that. I've never been a big believer in in defensive war, defining a player's defensive value. And I feel like there's hesitancy to sign him long-term because they're not sure about his defensive metrics, for example, or his range at shortstop. But nonetheless, though, you look at this guy, I feel like he's the complete package.
0: Okay, so what I'm struggling with is, yeah, I, I agree with you. Signing Corey Seager would be a great move, uh, and I think it's within the realm of possibility. I just don't see that's old school. I I I think... I think a lot of Yankees fans in particular get all worked up of, oh, the Yankees are all too analytical. Like, when was a lot, you know, with Gary Sanchez and Gleyber Torres, what do they do? They prioritize the offense over defense at those positions, right?
1: Yes, that was okay. cer- certainly in the case of uh, when, once they moved Gleyber to shortstop. I thought he was a pretty right. decent second baseman.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one, what other Yankees teams can you think of where the catcher and shortstop were better offensively than they were defensively?
1: Jorge Posada at Mm -hmm. you know the during the heart of the dynasty. Mm -hmm. Well, Derek Jeter as well. All
0: right, there you go. I rest my case. So the point is not that any belief system is undermining the Yankees. It's that they put their bets on the wrong players. Sanchez and Torres did not work out because they didn't hit enough to justify their defensive liabilities, right? And therefore they were overall liabilities. That's not analytics. That's just betting on the wrong guy and you also ding them for development issues because we've both seen both guys do have high ceilings, but neither one came close to it this year. And, you know, Sanchez for a few years.
1: Do you think that they're going to bring Sanchez back? No, I don't. And do you see them maybe having a big off season where they are actually going to spend on, you know, maybe a blockbuster name? Uh,
0: That's a very good, fair question. And I'm, I'm honestly not sure. You know, I think there's an argument. To be made with with up in particular, you know there, there was an argument to be made for going aggressively after Corey Seeger in particular. He would he would be my choice among the, this group because he hits lefty and because as you said he is an overall great talent with which analytic you know, analysts would fully one hundred percent agree with you. Uh, <laughs> Except with these defensive war though,
1: everyone's knocking his defense and it's
0: driving me crazy. Uh, and he's not he's not elite defensively, but. Guess what? His hit, his bat justifies his defense, and he makes the plays right. Like Derek Jeter, he makes the plays right. Right. Anyway. And, he's
1: a, and he's a great clutch hitter, certainly as well as we saw last. I mean, I'm looking closely. at his
0: defensive metrics now in Baseball Reference. He's never had a negative defensive WAR. He's had a couple of zeros. So I'm not. I think he might be overstating the opposition to him.
1: Right, but well, my issue is though, so his war goes down technically because he doesn't have a super high defensive war. Like for I'm just I have his baseball reference open now too, actually. Mm-hmm. He had so just for example, um Yeah, I'm looking. Yeah this You're year right. you could look at you could look at this year, for example. He had a yeah. 3.7 offensive mm-hmm. war, 0.5 defensive war, finished the year at a 3.7 war. So are right. you really saying that? He, you know, he was it, not valuable at all defensively. Does that, and that doesn't warrant signing him to a large contract. I, I personally, I hope that's who the Yankees get as well. And I'm glad that you, that we Let were gonna agree in agreement on that. I,
0: you, you've, you've touched the nerve with me, which is good because it's good for your podcast, right? It's entertaining <laughs> because I'm like, anti-intellectualism is crippling this country, right? We saw what happened on January 6th. We're, we're on the verge of disaster. So I feel like there are so many arguments made against the straw man of analytics. There is not an analyst on this planet who would say, don't sign Corey Seager. Not on this planet who would say, don't sign Corey Seager. They would point out that he's better offensively than he is defensively. That's it. But to, is, he- I think, to
1: hesitate to pay him, though, because of who's hesitating, know. who's hesitating. Well, I think that there's some teams that are going to pull out because of his defense or, you know, what the analytics say about his defense. And I'm not anti-analytics. I just don't think that should hold a team like the Yankees back from giving him close to a blank check.
0: Which there's no indication at will. If anything holds the Yankees back, it will be overall parsimoniousness, uh, you know, on Hal Steinmetter's behalf and possibly the idea that, all right, we have the two best position playing prospects in our system, are shortstops. And we don't want to completely close the door on them. So we go a more short-term solution via trade or something like that. And then we keep 2023 open for Volpe and Peraza.
1: You know, that's going to be interesting too, because, uh, you know, there's a lot of... uh hype around both of those guys. I'm pretty excited to see what Anthony Volpe can do at the higher levels, because I think I was reading recently that his minor league season this year was very much the equivalent of what Derek Jeter did in 1994 when he was at the same point in his professional career. So obviously, you know, it's a completely different situation. I'm not going to sit here and compare him to a Hall of Famer, but that's definitely someone that I look forward to seeing.
0: Yeah, the Yankees are very excited about him. Very excited. So we'll see. Uh, yeah, you're right. He clearly needs one more year, at least uh, partial year, in the minor leagues before graduating to the major leagues. But yeah, yeah, it is exciting to see what he will uh, what he will do.
1: Now, Ken, I could sit here and talk shortstops with you all day, but uh, <laughs> we do- <laughs> this is good back and forth. By the way, I got to yeah. say, I'm very excited for our audience to listen to this. Yeah. Um, but we do a little segment here on Break a Bat that's kind of a tradition. And uh, it's called Fastball Derby. I want you to picture yourself in the batter's box, ninth inning. Uh, Chapman's on the mound throwing 105 miles an hour, although these days it might be more like 100 or 101. But you got to <laughs> think quick as the hitter here. And uh, uh-huh. how about I ask you a question? You tell me the first thing that comes to mind. How does that sound?
0: Uh, yeah, let's see how we do.
1: <laughs> All right, I'll start you with an easy one. What's your favorite New York City meal?
0: Oh, man, that's a great question. Uh, gosh, that is a great Great question. Uh, I'll go with the Union Square Cafe. Um, that's my, my wife and I, one of our favorite spots Gone there for many an anniversary. Uh, and really, there's a few things I like. Uh, you know, they used to have this black bean soup that they would put uh, some sort of alcohol in there. <laughs> it was delicious. Uh, but I, I think now they no longer make it.
1: I haven't been there yet. I'll have to check it out. I'll tell my know Ken David off. Maybe they'll, yeah.
0: Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't (laughs) bank on that. But it it is a wonderful place. I think they put sherry in it, maybe. But it was so good. Mm,
1: Sounds delicious.
0: But it's still a delicious
1: place. All right. So since we are a baseball meets Broadway podcast, if you could be the lead (laughs) in a Broadway musical, what would it be?
0: Man, oh man, yeah. I took an acting class in college. Not for me, you know. I I prefer to be uh, in in a backstage person. Uh, but if I could be the lead, I I love Broadway. I love shows. Uh, what is my favorite show? Uh, gosh, that's a, such a great question. I'm completely, I, I've already looked at Strike Three, right? Uh, what, uh, I mean, you know what I love is, uh, what is the one that the movie just came out, uh, the musical? Uh, In Evan the Hansen. Dear Evan Hansen. Oh, Dear Evan Hansen. I, well, yeah, oh, okay. like what I mean. If I was talented enough to play Evan Hansen, which I'm obviously nowhere close to being, uh, that would be the role.
1: Well, you know what you could even do is, uh, you know, from an age perspective, maybe you can be Mr. Yes. Murphy, because I'm sure you remember from the musical he teaches Evan how to break in a glove. And uh, you know, Yeah, so what a
0: wonderful, that. I mean, my God, I'm just getting choked up thinking about that that play, but uh, yeah, and that is a great part, and I am that's about my age, you are correct.
1: Yeah. So, all right. So, I think you would be a good Larry Murphy. So, you could either be Evan Hansen's the dream role, but realistically, yeah, if there's, yeah, yeah. you know, maybe oh, the one ben day. Ben Pratt yeah. and
0: I were around the same age, and he, he's playing him in the movie. <laughs> That's
1: right. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if you saw all the pushback that he got about oh, that. Oh, I'm so well many aware. People- That's
0: why I made the joke. The joke, yeah. <laughs> well aware. Yeah, he and Did I about the same amount of hair.
1: Well, why do you think I'm wearing a hat, Ken? i got you have probably got 25 years on me, and uh, that's why I'm wearing a hat because not necessarily the fullest set of hair. But uh, I'm not sure if you saw all like the uh, replies to that on Twitter with like gifts of Greece with you know like a 35-year-old soccer soccer champion yeah, playing yeah, a high yeah. school uh, yeah. high school student and you know John Travolta at the time. It was pretty funny. <laughs> um, all right, so back to uh, fastball derby mm-hmm. here. Um, What's the greatest game you ever got to watch or cover in person?
0: Another great question. Um, Yeah, the greatest game I got to cover in person. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is 2003 ALCS game seven, uh, which is the reason that we're talking about Aaron Boone possibly coming back as manager. Uh, (laughs) It is fun. That was my first game back after my son was born. So I was kind of mentally out of it. But, uh, you know, that was still an an epic game.
1: Most uncomfortable Jeter and A-Rod moment.
0: (laughs) Man, oh, man. Um, You know, it's funny. I had the day off the day that the pop-up fell in between them, which I believe was 2006. Uh, But it had to be that day. It's funny. Just the stories. uh, I don't know if you know Howie Carpin. Uh, He's the longtime official scorer. At, at Yankees and Mets games and he, he does a lot of radio as well and he talks about how mad Jeter was when Howie gave Jeter the error on that play uh he, he said Jeter taught you know Jeter would usually you know is too cool to you know, question something like that but yeah that one really annoyed Jeter so he I'm pretty sure he spoke to Howie about it
1: wow all right um Let's go with an interesting one: best Yankee team you've covered that didn't win the World Series, oh, okay. either on you know on the beat level or the national level. Too.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, when you stop, you had the dramatic pause after teams you've covered. I was gonna say, obviously nineteen ninety eight, uh, but then you, you delivered the the hook
1: with the yeah not, that didn't win at all. Didn't win <laughs> at
0: all. I have to go with oh three um, because that starting rotation was so good. I mean, you know, Clemens still bringing it at. I think he was 41 by that point. Um, and Impedit, uh, Wells, uh, El Duque, I guess was no, El Duque Messina. was. Messina. Oh my God. Mike Messina. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it was, yeah. That front four all at or near their or close enough to their peaks. And then, you know, Jeter Posada still there. Who else was? Uh, oh, Giambi you, know, Giambi, you know, slowed down a little bit that year. But uh, Soriano, uh, their offense was. Mm-hmm not altogether dissimilar from some of the current Yankee team, you know, very strikeout heavy. Uh, but, uh, you know, just that, that pitching was so strong and Mariano closing, obviously. Uh, yeah. They, they were an excellent team.
1: Yeah. That's an, that's an interesting answer. You know, I, I look back at that whole, it's all kind of grouped together for me, you know, as far as the two thousands go post, you know, the subway series. However, the difference is Oh three was the last year before everything changed because Boston winning in 04 just really kind of, change the complexion yeah. of yeah, you're right. everything so that it, yeah. like kind of broke off the chapters yeah and uh now ken we're gonna use this one to wrap fastball derby we use it to wrap pretty much every episode of break a bat um what's the best piece of advice anyone's ever given you
0: oh that is a great plan you're just killing me with all these great questions um that well i'll i'll keep it the professional level, you know, as other, otherwise, you're really gonna make me dig deep. But, but just professionally, uh, when I was at the Bergen Record, I had uh, an editor named Mark Schwartz. Uh, and he, uh, you know, I was you know trying to make every every mountain and in, molehill into a mountain, I guess it would be. I was overplaying, overwriting stories, you know, at high school at the high school sports level. And I remember he told me to give it what it's worth. You know, if something's a small story, then write it as a small story. You know, just just write it with the proper perspective, and don't try to overinflate it. You know, and 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 kind of to me, it's it's uh, you know, I'd rather be accused of saying too little than too much. Uh, so I, that that kind of messed with my personal beliefs, and that is uh, stays stays with me. It was probably 1994 when he said that to me all these years later it still stays with me like you know if 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 you think you have something great then go for it swing for the fences but if this is a day where you know to mix analogies here like you know the best you're going to do is a a base hit you know just go the other way jeter-esque then just do that
1: i was was trying to think of a parallel for like instead of the jetarian swing i'm trying to think of the david david offian swing yeah
0: Jewish names, it doesn't work that kind of adjectives don't work that well.
1: <laughs> Same with the Italian names, too. Yeah, I couldn't really yeah. come up with something for that, yeah. too. But, Ken, you are absolutely the good stuff in baseball <laughs> coverage. I'm, I'm just so grateful we got to hang out for a little bit and talk. I'm sure our audience is going to love this. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Al. It's been a pleasure.
1: Well, folks, thanks so much for tuning in to Break a Bat today. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. This is Al Malafrante signing off for the Broadway Podcast Network. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Break a Bat. This is produced by the fine folks at the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit and subscribe at bpn.fm slash breakabat. You can find me online at break underscore a underscore bat underscore podcast. And you can also find the Broadway Podcast Network on Instagram at Broadway Podcast Network. It's been so great having you here with us today and we'll see you next time.